Hi, this is Bosker Sankara. Um, I'm the founder and editor of Jackman Magazine. I don't often do radio advertisements, but uh, I just wanted to say how happy I was that Dig is a part of the new Jacobin podcast network. You know, we need new critical left-wing analysis and thinking, and Dan Denver and his team is, is needed more than ever. Uh, that's why you should find the Dig at patreon.com and give them a monthly donation. I just gave them $10, and since I'm doing this radio promo for them, I was under absolutely no obligation to do that. Anyway, thanks, and here's Dan. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from AS220 in Providence, Rhode Island. If an extraterrestrial anthropologist touched down from outer space, tasked to describe the United States, this fresh-eyed observer would no doubt note that we have constructed our gargantuan system of human punishment. As of 2015, the United States held an estimated 2,173,800 people behind bars, 1,526,800 in prison, and 728,200 in jails. That's according to the most recent data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. As Adam Gopnik wrote at The New Yorker, mass incarceration on a scale almost unexampled in human history is a fundamental fact of our country today. Perhaps the fundamental fact, as slavery was the fundamental fact of 1850. It's a fact, however, that had for the affluent faded into the background, normalized as part of a functioning criminal justice system, Before Black Lives Matter, the new Jim Crow, and anti-mass incarceration activists across the country loudly insisted that what had become normal is in fact a moral monstrosity. Mass incarceration is also so systematically essential to the way our country works that it must be considered in any analysis of American political economy, including the rise of Donald Trump. Today, I'm speaking with Marie Gottschalk, a political scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. Gottschalk is the author of Caught, The Prison State and the Lockdown of American Politics, and The Prison and the Gallows, The Politics of Mass Incarceration in America. She was also a member of the National Academy of Sciences Committee on the Causes and Consequences of High Rates of Incarceration, and she was an author of the Academy's final report, The Growth of Incarceration in the United States, Exploring Causes and Consequences. Marie, welcome to The Dig. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. To what degree can we credit Trump's win on a law and order backlash against Black Lives Matter and the broader movement against mass incarceration? You know, there's so many factors to go into why Donald Trump won. It would take a lot of time to actually sort out what was going on in people's minds uh, about the particulars of of why he won. I think that what's not appreciated is in talking about the law and order context that the so-called deplorables that Hillary Clinton talked about actually have real, I think, criminal justice concerns. And that in talking about the criminal justice problem is largely a binary problem between blacks, uh, the 
sort of facing the hard edge of the carceral state. We ignore that the carceral state has actually been expanding to people who are white, uh, people who are in rural areas, people who are of low incomes. And it's interesting, some of the preliminary data we have now is that Trump did particularly well in areas where the opioid crisis has hit hardest. And I think that that's to me, one of the most interesting things about this election is that um, how law and order has, or criminal justice concerns have come in, in in that way. When people discuss mass incarceration, I think it's mostly conceived as something bad that the state does to people. But it also seems as though the carceral state in turn shapes and warps American political economy, government in politics, including the rise of, of Trump and Trumpism and the more long-running um, crackdown on, on immigrants in the country. Can you sort of lay out the, the ways that mass incarceration in the carceral state not only impact people, but, but in turn how, how, how it shapes our, our polity? I think if we were talking 10 or 15 years ago, we would use the term mass incarceration, which actually at that time was fairly unfamiliar, and it mostly focused on how many millions of people are in prison or jail. In the last couple of years, I think it's become much more popular to talk about the idea of a carceral state, and we can see... um, Justice Sonia Sotomayor used that in a recent Supreme Court decision. Tanisi Coates has used the term carceral state, and it captures this idea that it's not the two million people in prison and jail. It's not even the seven million people who are in prison, jail, probation, parole, somehow being watched by the state. But it's a larger idea that if you have such a massive criminal justice system that is incarcerating so many people and then putting so many uh, extra burdens on them when they're released. And then those burdens include the right to vote, the right to student loans, to public housing, that in some ways the car- this idea of the criminal justice system is metastasizing into the very fabric of our democracy and in some ways eroding that fabric. And so that's why I think it's better to use the term carceral state, and it captures the idea that none of us are really six degrees of separation anymore from the criminal justice system, even if we've never been in prison or jail or we don't know anybody who has a criminal record. What's the scope of the damage that President Trump and Attorney General Jeff Sessions can do? I mean, the good news is that People don't often grasp that the criminal justice system is mostly run at the state and local level, um, and so the federal government's powers over it are limited. But the bad news is also that those states are controlled uh, often by Republicans and that even many cities are run by Democrats um, who follow the fraternal order of police's law and order line. How do you see um, things moving forward or backward under Trump? That's a good question. I think at one level, people are trying to find a silver lining in the cloud and say, well, the federal system only incarcerates about 200,000 people of the 2.1 million people who are serving time in prison or jail, so that actually things happen much more at the local and the state level. I think the more realistic and, and decidedly more pessimistic reading is that rhetoric at the national level percolates down to the local and the state level. And so the rhetoric from Attorney General Sessions or from Donald Trump as candidate and now president of a much more strident, hardline pro-police 
and also one that demonizes or marginalizes more groups in society, then legitimizes that kind of language at all levels of the criminal justice system. And the example that comes back to me most striking is in the 1972 Furman decision when the Supreme Court declared that capital punishment, as it was then, was unconstitutional. At the time, the Nixon administration really didn't even take a position before the Supreme Court, but once the decision was announced, Richard Nixon uh, denounced it and in very strident language, and then you had, in a matter of months, a couple of dozen states passing capital, new capital punishment laws that they hoped would pass the muster of the Supreme Court. And lo and behold, you had a, a pro-death penalty movement emerge where one hadn't really existed before, and lo and behold, in 1976, with the Gregg decision, the Supreme Court brings capital punishment back. So I think there's the rhetoric level, and then there's the incentive level. Um, the 1994 crime bill was talked a lot, talked about a lot in this recent campaign, and certainly the federal government doesn't build the prisons directly, but it can provide incentives for states to have tougher policies and to build more prisons. And in the 1994 crime bill, the federal government offered billions of dollars in incentives that if you kept people in your state facilities for 85% of their sentence, the so-called truth in sentencing, then you would get um, federal money to build more prisons and to operate more prisons. We also see uh, in the case of law enforcement with the war on drugs, that drug enforcement used to be largely a local state affair. Once the feds came into the war on drugs in a big way, they created these local state federal task forces to prosecute the war on drugs. And we're seeing that with crim um, the criminalization of the enforcement of immigration policy, this kind of closer nexus between local law enforcement and the federal government and federal pressure or moral suasion or money to to compel local authorities to be enlisted in, in the war on immigrants. And then I think the final one, and it's very striking from Barack Obama. Barack Obama, I think, was belated in coming to publicly speaking out on the problems of mass incarceration and the need for criminal justice reform. I think he failed to frame it early on in his administration and waited until he had been securely reelected. But he did do a couple of important things in framing the issue towards the end of administration. One was to say they would phase out private prisons in the federal system. And the other was to draw attention to the problems in solitary confinement and administrative segregation. And by, again, drawing attention to those problems and having certain policies at the federal level, he helped to legitimize those kind of policies, questioning solitary confinement, questioning further privatization of penal facilities at the local and the state level. I think it's reasonable to expect that those policies will be reversed under the Trump administration. In your work, you pay close attention to the less obvious origins of mass incarceration and how some popular explanations offered can at times be too simplistic. In particular, you've critiqued aspects of the new Jim Crow thesis and also uh, the notion of a prison and industrial complex. Uh, so this is a huge question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, why did mass incarceration arise? I wish that there was one answer that we could point to a one reason cause for mass incarceration. And in fact, it's kind of like the perfect storm coming together. And what's also 
misleading for people is what caused mass incarceration may not be the same thing that sustained it over time. So on the right, on the left, we often hear this idea of a prison industrial complex, that there are these naked economic interests that cause mass incarceration. And I think if you look back over the historical record, it's really hard to see how economic interests dominated and pushed this massive building of prisons. Uh, they're certainly um, a factor, but they weren't the main factor. Now, if we look at dismantling the carceral state today, certainly that's a major, major factor, that now these economic interests are very vested in a large, expensive criminal justice system that has lots of private pieces like uh, health care, like probation, like parole in some cases, like electronic monitoring, and those interests are going to fight um, any kind of significant rollback of, of the carceral state. On the political economy side, I think it's important to see not the prison industrial complex so much, but rather the role of uh, deindustrialization in the cities, the creation of a, a surplus population that was uh, politically created as a political threat, uh, particularly in urban areas with large populations of immigrants and particularly uh, African Americans. I think in the case of the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander has done some wonderful things with that book. I think she's created this understanding of mass incarceration more widely in the public, but it has also created the idea that the war on drugs was the primary driver of mass incarceration. And if we could release everybody from prison today whose primary crime that they're in for is a drug crime, we would only reduce the state prison population by about 16%. In the feds, it would be more significant, about 50%. So that ending the war on drugs is not going to end mass incarceration. And what drove mass incarceration is partially the war on drugs. It's partially uh, tightening up and more strict sentences across the boards for all kinds of crimes. And then creative invention of new sentences um, or the proliferation of sentences that used to be very rare, like life sentences. And so what we see... Uh, initially may have been a, a target population of African Americans, those strict policies and strict approach has migrated to other populations like poor whites who are increasingly um, a surplus population in many areas or a feared population. And if we take a new Jim Crow approach, it's really hard to explain how some states that are very white states, states like Wyoming and Idaho, have very high incarceration rates. And the new Jim Crow, a racial understanding can't directly explain that. Indirectly, it can explain that. I think the other thing that we often miss is we think that mass incarceration was something that was cooked up by a few big bad Republicans like Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon and George H.W. Bush with his Willie Horton ads. And then leading elite Democrats kind of had to play catch up and have a, a free for all bidding for who could be the toughest on crime and the toughest on people who commit crimes. And we don't look at more at the why there was no pushback from those policies. We don't look at the variety of uh, opinion among African Americans and whites about uh, mass incarceration and about more strict policy. We just assume that this is something that was elite top down 
And that's fed into this idea that <clears throat> you can have an elite top-down solution now if just Newt Gingrich and Grover Norquist and the NAACP get together on the same page with the Koch brothers, we can reverse this. It's a lot more difficult to reverse because it's much more entrenched, and it wasn't just something that elites, top elites did it. It seems like what, what you argue in terms of economics is that it's uh, not about economic interests, the rise of mass incarceration, but maybe more about political economic function in terms of uh, there being a program of social control um, to um, systematically discipline um, a group of people, disproportionately but not exclusively black, who have been excluded structurally from the labor market of the past half century. Does that get closer to uh, than than the economic direct kind of naked economic interests argument? Yeah, what I would also add is that many people think that the racial disparities in incar- mass incarceration, ha- the racial disparities in prisons and jails, happen with mass incarceration, and they actually predate the rise of the incarceration rate that that began in the mid-1970s, that in fact in northern areas we've had for quite a while um, prior to that a four-to-one or a five-to-one disparities between black, whites, and incarceration. And if you look at more uh, deeper structural issues, what you find is that it's likely an kind of incomplete incorporation of African Americans who moved north in the Great Migration. And that it wasn't that they came north, they got all these wonderful manufacturing jobs, and then those jobs disappeared. Many of them were coming north uh, at a time of fierce discrimination, and as there began to be a contraction of those jobs and of the manufacturing base. And so that predates the 1960s and the 1970s, and I think it points at this deeper failure to structurally incorporate uh, African Americans in the 1920s and 1930s as they moved into urban areas. In terms of thinking about the racial politics of mass incarceration in the carceral state currently, um, how how does one both emphasize and acknowledge um, the important disproportionality that's that's at play? Black people are even control even controlling for class factors are incarcerated at much higher rates than white people while also um, laying out the ways that mass incarceration in the carceral state increasingly afflict a, a, a very broad swath of working class America. Um, and it seems like there's an analytical and a political concern. It's not just an analytical shortcoming to describe mass incarceration as, as completely a black issue, but a political one as well, in the sense that um, if we erroneously describe mass incarceration as an exclusively black issue, it seems to play into the right wing's hands because um, a system that uh, that successfully locks up large numbers of black people um, might very well appeal to a lot of right wing white people. I think the fundamental issue is to look at those statistics on the incarceration rate of blacks compared to whites and then compare them to other countries. So the black incarceration rate of jails and prisons is about 2,300 per 100,000. The white incarceration rate is about 
400 per 100,000. So if you look at that, you say whites are getting a good deal, that in fact their rate is so much lower, and it's about a, a 6 to 1 black-white ratio. But if we look at other advanced industrialized countries in Europe, Canada, Japan, then this 400 per 100,000 is extraordinarily large. It's very, very high. And we're actually extremely punitive to white people in the United States. Uh, 400 per 100,000 is about uh, two and a half to five times the incarceration rates in Europe. So if you, if you take the most punitive countries in Europe, like England or Spain, they're incarcerating people at 150 per 100,000, and the United States is doing 400 per 100,000 of white people. So that if people on the right are concerned about the power of the state, and the most important powers of the state are to send you off to the military, to execute you and to incarcerate you, then you should be profoundly concerned that many whites are being picked up and incarcerated. And if we look at shootings, shootings by police of civilians, if you're white in the United States, there's a much, much higher chance you're going to be shot and killed by the police compared to Germany or the Netherlands. It's infinitesimal chance that you'll be shot there uh, compared to in the United States. So it's important to say to the right, if you're concerned about state power, then you have to say that state power is exerting a brutal foot on whites. It's maybe two brutal feet on blacks, but there's still a lot of brutal state violence being uh, exerted onto whites in the United States. And politically from the left, how should we go about both emphasizing the disproportionality uh, toward black people while also discussing the way that mass incarceration and the carceral state harm so many so as to build a movement where people recognize their common interest in, in, in tearing down that system? I don't think it's too hard to look back in American history and see that brutal punishments and practices that initially are started directed against African Americans migrate to other populations. As Lani Guineer, the Harvard University law professor, said a number of years ago, African Americans are like the canary in the coal mine, coal mine that the, the harsh things that are directed at them, their response to it what the state is doing is a warning to the wider society about what's going on. So I don't think that that argument is that hard to make. It, it's hard to get a hearing for that argument, but I don't think it's that hard to make. And, you know, if you go out to rural areas now, rural Ohio, you know, the fastest growing population, uh, incarceration population is white women in rural Ohio. And many people are talking about how, oh, now that we have an opioid crisis, people are finally beginning to see the drug issue as a public health issue rather than a criminal justice issue. But the data is not bearing that out. There's some shift in the rhetoric, but many whites in rural areas are getting picked up for drug crimes. They're not having proper legal representation. Uh, we're having prosecutors in rural areas uh, harshly going after people who sold or gave people drugs, but then the people overdosed on those drugs. So that's, I don't think that's a mystery to people in, in rural areas. And I don't think it's always so hard to, to draw that 
that connection, especially when you talk to people one-on-one, trying to break through the dominant national narrative where you have uh, Donald Trump uh, further trying to criminalize immigrants and further racialize the crime problem. That's really tough to break through. But I go all over the country talking about these issues, and I seldom have anybody say, no, this is really, really a black issue. This is not an issue for whites. The It's interesting that you referenced the opioid crisis in rural areas and the, the law and order response that's um, underway that a lot of people haven't recognized as underway, but very much is. Um, what is uh, historically, in terms of, it, there's been a lot of debate um, over the role that real-world crime played in the rise of mass incarceration. On the one hand, it's clear that mass incarceration was in no way a justifiable response to crime or is explainable entirely or even close to <laughs> entirely because of crime. But on the other hand, the late 20th century did witness a massive uptick in in violent crime in the U.S. How, how do you see it? Certainly, we had this phenomenal jump in homicide rates between the mid-1960s and the mid-1970s, and accompanied by an, also an increase in robbery and other violent crimes. But if you look at Europe during the same period from the 60s to today, and you look at crime rates, crime rates went up and down in Europe and Canada, they can almost exactly map over the pattern in the United States. So Europe also, European countries had a sharp increase in violent crime. It was from a much lower base, right? The homicide rate is much low in Europe, but it went up and down in a very similar way. In Europe, people didn't respond to the increase in crime by saying, let's lock more people up. People said, yes, we have an increase in crime. Let's address alternatives to incarceration, let's expand the social safety net, prisons don't reduce crime, they can actually increase the crime rate over time. So the the crime rate was significant, but the more significant thing is, okay, you have this increase in crime, how do you respond to it? In the U.S. case, that crime rate was, the response to that crime rate was politicized in a way that blamed the increase in crime on riots, protests, demonstrations that were associated with the civil rights movement and the black power movement, and politicians fueled a kind of backlash against these movements and talked about the need to uh, lock pe- more people up because of this sense of anarchy and crime getting out of control. What we also see is that increases in crime are they're kind of like a broken thermometer that the system gets shocked by that doubling of the homicide rate. And then when it starts to go down, the system is still responding as if it's at a very high level of homicide. And if you don't have politicians who are willing to step out, take the political courage, educate the public about that, then the public continues to believe that the crime rate is really high. It's not going down, even though it's in fact going down. And we saw efforts to do that to kind of criminalize um, uh, protests and the Black Lives Matter after Ferguson, and we had this so-called Ferguson effect, where we had a number of cities that ha- had spikes in crime, but overall the nation did not experience a huge spike in crime. But people, Trump and some of his surrogates, tried to say that this was 
uh, in response to the Black Lives Matter and, and to protests at the time. What you said uh, prompted uh, Richard Nixon's The First Civil Right uh, campaign ad to just start playing in my head. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, there um, and, you know, Trump even used that language of, of the silent majority, right? We'll be back with more of this interview in a moment. But first, I want to thank you for listening. And I also want to ask you for money. We are getting so much great feedback on this show, and our audience is growing fast. Please find us on Patreon.com to support us financially. Even a few bucks a month is extraordinarily helpful. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And just search for The Dig, and it will explain how you can support us. Thanks. Trump, as you mentioned, Trump and other law and order figures have made a point of exaggerating uh, upticks in murder in a small number of cities to make the false assertion that crime is out of control, when in fact, um, it still remains at historic lows. And they've also pointed to high murder rates in a small number of cities to blame Black Lives Matter for causing police not to do their jobs and thus encouraging for an, in, a, in an unexplained causal manner people to kill each other. Why why have these lies from the right and from you know the Manhattan Institute in particular proved so salient for so many right now? And what does that say about the fragility of the meager reforms that have that have been underway in recent years? The reform effort that everyone's touted at the elite level, the kind of smart on crime, right on crime, based its challenge to the carceral state on economics, that if we reduce the prison and jail population will save a lot of money. And a couple of things that were wrong with that. First, that prisons and jails overall were not costing budgets that much. They were increasing very quickly, but the state spending on prisons was less than what states spend on highways. Second of all, we've had historically um, ups and uh, downs in the economy, and many times we said, oh, we're in an economic downturn, we have to reduce incarceration and reduce the criminal justice system, and that hasn't really happened. But I think the more fundamental problem with that argument is that it never challenged the pernicious rhetoric that created and sustains the carceral state, and that an economic argument was no match for the kind of law and order rhetoric that was unleashed again in this campaign, and that the ground wasn't laid uh, to challenge that rhetoric to make the argument that, in fact, the data shows incarcerating people, the, the big incarceration of people did not significantly reduce the crime rate. At most, it may have had a marginal effect and in some cases may have actually increased the crime rate. And so those arguments were not out there being made. It was more a kind of cost-benefit analysis that we have to reduce the carceral state because it will save money. And that is never a great way to stretch to strategize and map out a long-term movement to challenge uh, a huge shift in public policy like the building up of prisons and jails across the country. Yeah, if um, if mass incarceration in the carceral state do pose a moral challenge on the order of, of, of slavery or Jim Crow, as, as many have argued, then a sort of technocratic... Um, cost-benefit analysis approach seems 
sort of woefully unprepared to take that on. Right. I think that you know the most challenging public policy problems are never merely technical problems and appeals to science or to economics are incapable of mobilizing a durable public ideal around which you can have a durable long-term reform movement that's actually going to fundamentally reduce the prison and jail population and dismantle the carceral state. To what degree is is an obstacle to building such a movement the fact that violent crimes remain a third rail for many mainstream reformers. In your work, you talk a lot about the non-non-nons and the um, the reality that just just stopping the drug war, which would be great to do, but just doing that and just getting non-violent offenders out would not end mass incarceration. We have to actually grapple with how we excessively punish people who do things that are bad and and objectively socially undesirable. That is the very, very difficult part of this problem. And what we're seeing is that many states, and indeed some of the reform legislation talked about at the federal level, is bifurcating. It's saying, let's lighten up the sentences on the non-non-nons, the non-serious, non-sexual, non-violent offenders, so we can really go after the bad guys, expand life in prison without the possibility of parole, use more life sentences, use uh, three strikes laws more aggressively, have more uh, penalties for using a gun or carrying a gun during a crime. And so what we've seen is that we've actually had between 2008 and 2012 a tripling of the number of sentences of people in life in prison without the possibility of parole. And during that time, the total number of people serving life sentences has increased by about 17,000. So about um, you know half of those people have been LWOP and others have just been life sentences. And we've this increase in the LWOP sentences is the equivalent of tripling the death penalty, uh, the death row population in the United States. So if you think LWOP is like the other death penalty, we've essentially tripled the death row population without barely a whimper in the United States. So it's not only that we're unwilling to address the problem of keep people who committed violent offenses, but are no longer threats to public safety, but in fact, we're increasing the penalties on those people in the name of compromise and a quid pro quo to reduce the sentences on non-non-non. So what we're seeing is that, in fact, as we wind down the war on drugs, sentence lengths and time served for other crimes is increasing. Prosecutors are filing more felony charges and they're more successful at prosecuting those charges and getting guilty convictions or pleas for those charges. And this helps to explain why, for all the talk about reform and how much is happening, that the prison and jail population hasn't significantly decreased over the last few years for all the hoopla about a new day dawning and that the pendulum is swinging away from incarceration. You touched on this a little earlier, but could you describe a little more why you think the carceral state is is so resilient? Is it because it has turned into one uh, with um, ingrained economic, private economic interests at play? Is it more just banal path dependency? Um, is it because our politics have been warped um, nearly irreparably to, to reinforce it? What? Why is it so resilient? 
all of the above, right? I don't think you can single out any one of them. It's the politics, it's the economics, it's the way that's in the social fabric today. And it also reflects the wider pathologies in American politics today, that for all the talk about the polarization between the parties, the mainstream of both parties swings in a pretty narrow range about public policy reform. And that that narrow range is one of the reasons why you saw the breakdown of the Democratic Party with the Bernie Sanders challenge and the breakdown with the challenge from the Trump supporters in the Republican Party, because for different reasons, both parties are not addressing these fundamental issues and that Americans are feeling alienated from the political system. And so it's expressing itself in these um, extra party developments that don't fit neatly into kind of a bipartisan consensus at the top. And all the attention has been on Trump and the Republicans and what the Republicans have done wrong, but we've ignored the, the fact that the, Republic, that the Democratic Party itself has not wholeheartedly embraced reform, embraced these movements, embraced criminal justice reform that isn't about just an elite consensus, but it's actually about tapping into the ferment now at the grassroots level for not just Black Lives Matter, but uh, the formerly incarcerated people who are mobilizing, people who are mobilizing against users, uh, telephone rates in uh, prisons and jails, the shackling of pregnant women, uh, the banning of the box. And and we haven't seen the Democratic Party and elites want to tap into that. Yeah, I, I... I hate to be such a downer, but just to emphasize how how modest the reforms have been at present um, up to now, as of 2015, uh, according to the most recent Bureau of Justice Statistics data, um, represented the largest decrease in the prisoner population since 1978. But that was only a 2.3% decline. So just with that that level of decrease, which was... um, about 35,500, um, a reduction of 30,000, 35,500 prisoners that year, um, to get back to where we were in 1980, which was an all, when we had an already pretty large prisoner population of 329,821, just to get back to that number, we would have to replicate that 35,500 prisoner reduction for roughly 34 years in a row. I mean, we're really in deep. (laughs) I think it's even more pessimistic because if you look at the drop from the high point of 2008 until 2015, which is the latest data that we have, the total drop is about 6% or about 135,000 people. 55% of that drop is driven by recent changes with the federal government, particularly changes implemented by the U.S. Sentencing Commission some of which were one-time changes. And then California drove a huge piece of that, about 39% of that drop, and that was largely driven by the Brown versus Plata decision that went up to the Supreme Court. And then a court decision related to parole reform in New Jersey was uh, the way parole was being used in Jersey affected that. So 55% of the drop is driven by just three things, the feds, California, and New Jersey. So it's, and in many states, 
we've had very modest drops or they're actually been increasing significantly. And those three things I identified have very little to do with the elite consensus for reform, that they were in fact in the California case, you know, some movement politics that pushed this Supreme Court decision and it was over 20 years. So we get the idea that it was just the courts that did it. We ignore the fact that people have been mobilizing for 20 years around this court case uh, in, in California. And that explains a lot of the drop in the state prison population just because California dropped and a number not in the number of other states. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Plata decision because I wanted to ask you about what you see, um, how you assess the role of the judiciary and potentially checking um, the carceral state and mass incarceration. Um, with the Plata decision and others, there's been some anticipation that it might be possible to expand Eighth Amendment jurisprudence to actually substantively consider what cruel and unusual punishment entails, which for decades the Supreme Court has been unwilling to take a hard look at. Um, Obviously now with Gorsuch likely to take the late Justice Scalia's seat, um, I'm not anticipating that there'll be a uh, uh, he'll have a huge appetite for Eighth Amendment, um, expansive Eighth Amendment jurisprudence. Right. But, um, but where do you see the what do you see as the the court's role in this? I see much more promising developments within prosecutors' offices and Maverick DAs stepping out on this these issues as we've seen with. John Chisholm in Milwaukee or the late Kenneth Thompson up in New York City. I don't have much hope that this is going to be led by the judiciary, especially given the appointments that we're probably going to be looking at at the Supreme Court over the next little while. Uh, I think the U.S. Sentencing Commission under Patty Saris was doing some terrific things within the limits of the Sentencing Commission to reduce the federal prison population. Now that she's left as head of the Sentencing Commission and the Trump administration has a couple of new appointments, I'm not very hopeful that the Sentencing Commission will be doing the chipping away that it had previously been doing under her leadership. Uh, You know, I just, you know, there'll be isolated court cases, but if these things go up to the Supreme Court, like a, like capital punishment, like ad seg, and we're looking at the Supreme Court moving in a more conservative direction, this may be a case of where you don't even want those cases to go up to the Supreme Court because you may be setting very nasty precedents that then are going to be harder to undo if you have a new court in the future. And hypothetically, if we do have a new court one day and a few more uh, Sotomayors, um, in that context, do you think that there's room um, to for the courts really to, to, to push hard on this? You know, we always overstate the role of the courts, and we focus on the one decision, and we say the Supreme Court gave it to us. And it's kind of like a doctor delivering a baby who cuts the umbilical cord and says the doctor gave us the baby. And we don't pay attention to all the activism, the movement politics that it took to create that decision and that we know a lot of these decisions are not purely legal decisions. They're also looking at the political context and creating that political context, not just who are the appointments on the court, but also how the justices look out and see the polity at that moment in time. So the court matters, but it often matters to the extent of it's cutting the umbilical cord after a lot of movement politics that precedes that. And I think one of the mistakes that the anti-death penalty movement made is that they had a number of victories in the courts 
and they felt that you could argue against the death penalty largely uh, in legalistic terms, but they were constrained by the precedents and the decisions that happen, and those decisions that happen, you have to do your legal strategy press, uh, pitched on those decisions, and that may be at odds of what kind of political strategy and mobilization you need more widely in state legislatures to stop the death penalty. Well, so I'm I sure wouldn't it... overplay the dependence on the courts, and also, um, like I said, the legal strategies at times can be at odds at what might be a uh, more winning political strategy over the long term. Um, well, I, I, I'm sure I'm sure uh, that uh, Gorsuch would respond that, of course, the politics and polity of today don't don't matter. What matters is the uh, public meaning of the Constitution in the late 18th century. <laughs> right. Well, I'm the, my favorite book that I've read over the last year or so is the new book by Michael Klarman, "The Framers' Coup: The Making of the United States Constitution." And if you ever had any doubts about whether the Constitution was political or not, or how it got ratified, or how much did the founders really care about slavery, all those issues, um, the founders were very, very political animals, much more than they were just legal animals. And we should see the Constitution and its ratification for all of its political messiness, and not just treat it as a sacrosanct biblical text that has this original meaning that we can't possibly tamper with. It was marred by politics, stained by politics, stained by irregularities dating back to day one. And we should see it in all of that historical, complicated historical context and not as this, you know, pristine document given to us by these heroic demagogues. I should say, not demigod- demigods. <laughs> Some were demagogues, I'm sure. Right, well. <laughs> right. But I want to say they were worried about demagogues back then. Um, and and the interesting thing is that they were, and and why this book is so vibrant today is that they were worried about aristocracy and how aristocratic the framers actually were and how vested they were in uh, marginalizing dissent from state legislatures and marginalizing uh, and crushing dissent from people who were upset about um, excessive debts and excessive taxes. and ex- Like the Whiskey Rebellion. and uh, The Whiskey Rebellion, but particularly Shays Rebellion, Shays Rebellion. In, in Massachusetts. Uh, mm-hmm. Whiskey Rebellion coming later, but Shays Rebellion, um, which was uh, you know, perceived to be anarchy at that moment in time and the concern about lots of foreclosures that were happening and making state courts not be able to meet so that they wouldn't be able to foreclose on more properties. So there's, there's um, quite a warning to the justices whenever they talk about how um, they should get back to the originality. I think if you get back to the originality, then you have to see the politics and you have to see that messy political context. It's interesting that you, you mentioned Shays' rebellion and their the mobilizations in Massachusetts to shut down courts to block them from foreclosing on property. It really seems uh, like an echo of, of of what we're seeing today with the criminal justice system being used to squeeze revenue um, out of poor people that should be uh, being generated from equitable progressive taxation on on the rich. Right, and this was a fundamental discussion among the framers about you know that very question and the other thing that comes out is we forget how much the framers and the but particularly the wider public cared about jury trials 
and that that was such an essential right. And when you think that, you know, well over 90% of cases are de- decided without ever going to jury and they're deciding through a plea bargain, this is antithetical to what the framers had in mind. And um, so it's a, really a dramatic change from what they were talking about more than 200 years ago. Which makes the, the prosecutors basically the, the judge and the jury. Sure, the judge and the jury. Circling back to the present, it was notable that Trump received such full-throated support from both the Fraternal Order of Police and the union representing Border Patrol agents. And more recently, his tough-on-crime performance has received rave reviews from the National District Attorneys Association. To what degree do you think law enforcement represents an institutionally reactionary force and is an impediment to ending mass incarceration? The rise of mass incarceration, we've certainly seen prosecutors getting stronger associations and organizing their interests better and becoming more political animals in the system. And that's so that's that's something that certainly accompanied the rise of mass incarceration. Um, the police unions have been around for a while. They've been pretty strong. I think that what we do have is some pushback from, I think, progressive police who are saying that you can't, you know, convict and jail and prison your your way out of this problem, and that in fact trying to demonize communities and push a hard boot approach to all of this is er- is eroding trust between police and communities. So I do think that we're seeing some pushback, but we're also seeing um, Trump politically exciting and mobilizing law enforcement and even, you know, his threats to send in the feds into the city of Chicago. And it's not clear who would have charge there is, is this um, upsetting and uh, discouraging. And just reported this morning uh, by the AP that there was a memo being sent around that would potentially authorize uh, national guard agents and a num- national national guard so- troops in a number of states um, to detain unauthorized immigrants, which mm-hmm. seems like a fairly dystopian um, uh, convergence of the kind of military military power of the United States and and policing. Right, and one of the big debates in, among the framers of the Constitution was what was going to happen to their state militias. And could, under what circumstances could the feds call out their state militias to put insurrections down or to turn the state militias against citizens within the state? And so this idea that the feds now want to use the National Guard to enforce federal immigration policy um, it would raise, I think, some of those concerns that the, that the framers raised. So my last question is uh, looking ahead. If mass inc- to the extent that mass incarceration and the carceral state are a system of social control to manage and discipline those excluded by the current neoliberal political economic order, how should the movement against the carceral state then be linked to broader struggles for social and economic justice? And how do you see that potentially and ideally playing out in the coming years? I think we have to be careful not to conflate the incarceration problem and the crime problem. 
that they're related, but they're distinct problems. And we can see the carceral state is deeply entangled in the political and the economic and social fabric of the United States. But we have to resist the belief that the only way to raise it is to tackle these so-called root causes of crime, like massive unemployment, massive poverty, um, massive levels of social and economic inequality. Those deeper structural issues need to be addressed. But if the aim is to slash the country's incarceration rate sooner rather than later, this kind of root causes approach is short-sighted. That, in fact, what we do know is that incarcerating people, as the National Academy of Sciences report recently said, doesn't reduce crime. So we can slash the incarceration rate now without necessarily having a big bump in the crime rate. The separate problem is that we have... um, pockets of the United States with extraordinarily unacceptable levels of crime. And the fact that people, um, that, and for that, we need to address these kind of deeper structural problems uh, in the United States today. But I think we can't give into this kind of dystopian despair that we have to fix unemployment you know, lower the unemployment rate, fix the schools, fix the health care system, et cetera, et cetera, before we can address the mass incarceration problem. The policies to reduce the incarceration problem are no mis- no mystery um, how to reduce that. You know, they're very straightforward. It's really the thorny politics that stand in the way. But in order to address, despite the crime drop, these excessive levels really of um, homicide and violent crime in certain communities, that's going to take addressing these deeper structural problems in the United States. And that's going to take a kind of long-term solution. But in the meantime, we don't have to be, we have to make the argument locking up so many poor, marginalized people from these communities, uh, there's no compelling public safety reason to do that. I, I agree entirely that there's no reason we have to wait. But I wonder if also the the, the very political question, um, the, the reason that there is a political obstacle is because of the way the current political economic order is structured to more generally exclude the very same people who are harmed by mass incarceration. So it seems like part of the political solution will have to be a kind of radically democratic mobilization that takes on all of these issues, or else why is the political system without um, these people being mobilized in large numbers, um, why why would it end mass incarceration on its own? Well, whether you're talking about mass incarceration, whether you're talking about health care, whether you're talking about in- income inequality, it comes down fundamentally to that there's a profound disconnect between the problems that the country faces. And let me put climate change in there, too, because that's my number mm-hmm. one issue. But the problems that the country faces and the inability of the political system to address those problems. So whether you're way on the right or way on the left, I think there's an agreement that the political system is not addressing your problems. <laughs> and then the question becomes, what's what's the solution to that? But there's a very deep legitimacy crisis for the political system right now. And it seems like any of those problems, you can't address just that single problem, but you need to see how that problem is related to the inability of the political system to take up that problem. Um, Marie, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this. 
Oh, thank you, Dan. I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. In last week's interview with Jed Purdy, I made an error in describing his biography. I said that he was currently writing After Nature, a politics for the Anthropocene. In fact, After Nature is very much completed, published, and for sale. I'm going to go out and buy it, and so should you. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, engineered by Tristan Rodman, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts, and subscribe, and leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help put us in front of new listeners, which is great for all parties involved. And please find us on Patreon.com and support us with a monthly payment. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.